emergency, which we don't plan to have happen uh, today, that you guys are aware that we do have emergency evacuation plans. So please make yourself uh, acquainted with the two emergency exits. You go out those doors, they take you to a hallway, the hallway takes you to a stairway, the stairway takes you to an alleyway, and then you cross the street and wait for their instructions. But again, we don't anticipate that any event like that will be necessary today, but we do want to make sure you know we take your security very important, uh, very seriously. Um, so tonight's event is the first ever Energy Transitions Forum here at CSIS. And as we all know, countries around the world face the same challenges to provide enough energy to fuel improved standards of living and to do so in a way that leaves the best outcomes for the environment and their citizenry. Um, however, today countries are each facing this challenge from a different stage in their development with differing various needs and varying levels of capability to enact those solutions. And this means that energy must be affordable and secure and clean uh, as, 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 excuse me, as affordable and clean and secure as possible to be able to enable them to make that transition. So for nearly half a decade now, the global community has organized around two overarching goals. For the energy sector, uh, for the energy sector, namely to eradicate energy poverty and to combat the pervasive effects of global climate change. Each of these challenges has become more urgent and more complex. The mission to eradicate energy poverty is not simply about improving energy access, but also providing modern energy services to the world's growing and developing populations. The need to address climate change is not simply about reducing emissions. It is about achieving net zero emission economy while tackling local environmental concerns, addressing key questions about a just transition, and making sure we do so in a way that is uh, quick and affordable. Just this past week, the UN-led Global Commission on Adaptation released a report calling on countries to transform key systems in their economy to boost resilience and productivity in the face of climate impacts. The report provides an additional sobering assessment of the challenges that lay before us. Oops, excuse me. The discouraging news is that we're not on track to achieve either of these objectives. The uplifting news is that we've made progress on key measures uh, on the technological, policy, and societal front that can better enable us to meet these goals if we commit to taking additional action. The purpose of this forum is to take stock of where we stand relative to this dual challenge and to discuss areas where real progress can be made over the near term. Today's event also serves as the launch for a new year-long project where the CSIS Energy Program will explore strategies to address the dual challenge in several key countries around the world and identify public and private sector resources that can be brought to bear to help these countries achieve these goals. We're very pleased to count BP, the World Bank, the International Energy Agency, and the Climate Policy Lab at Tufts University, as well as many others as partners in this effort. Before introducing the first panel, I'd just like to take a moment to recognize the context in which this event is taking place. Next week, global leaders will converge in New York to discuss a host of pressing climate is global issues, including the ones that we'll discuss this evening. Both the UN General Assembly meetings, the UN Climate Change Summit, and New York Climate Week will all feature discussions of these topics. And, and then at the same time, an unprecedented youth strike will accompany those meetings, encouraging greater attention to these issues of climate change and the need to take action to address them. 
We hope as much, that as, mu as much as possible tonight's conversation and our work through this project can be about taking concrete actions that are necessary to rise to this dual challenge. Through other work here at CSIS, we're focusing on what we can he do here in the United States. But I firmly believe we need to roll up our sleeves and find some pragmatic pathways and options for many of the world's rapidly developing countries. And we're thrilled to be able to do that with this project and the support of sponsors like BP. Now, it's my great pleasure to invite our first panel to the stage. My colleague, Nico Safos, who's a senior fellow in the Energy and National Security Program, will introduce our panel of experts and get the program underway. Thank you very much. Uh, with the Energy and National Security Program here, and so we're going to kick off this event. We have a fantastic panel, uh, and it tells you a little bit about how great this event is, that we are the warm-up panel. So, um, <laughs> and so uh, right next to me, um, we have Ricardo Puliti, who's the group director for um, energy and the extractive um, industries practice at the World Bank, and also the regional director of Africa for infrastructure. Um, next to him is uh, Spencer Dale, who's the group chief economist uh, for BP, and on the far left, uh, my left is Mafalda Duarte, who is the head of the Climate Investment Fund. So a great, uh, very diverse uh, panel in terms of perspectives. So I want to go straight into it and start with you, uh, Ricardo. You, the World Bank, in, in collaboration with other institutions, put out this big report talking about the progress we're making towards the SDG, um, Sustainable Development Goals, and Sustainable Development Goal 7. Yeah. Um, so what did you find? Okay, Ben, first of all, a, a good afternoon to everybody. I have to say the, the findings of the report are, are positive, but not as positive as we would have liked them to be. So between 2010 and 2017, the access to electricity rate went up from 83 to 89%. Uh, it means that uh, instead of having 1.2 billion uh, people of the world population without access to electricity, now we have 840. So as I said, it's, it's a positive piece of news, but it's not as positive as we would have liked. Then the, the improvements are very, very, very different from region to region. I'm afraid to say Sub-Saharan Africa, out of these 840 million, 570 million are resident in Sub-Saharan Africa. So there has been very, very good improvement in, uh, in uh, Asian countries. I'm thinking about India, I'm thinking about Bangladesh, I'm thinking about Myanmar. Uh, while, I mean, there are just a few uh, African countries where the improvement has been very notable. One of them is Kenya, which is very much of a success story. But I have to say, I have here at least countries like Burundi, Chad, Malawi, Democratic Republic of Congo, and Niger have still uh, the, the very, very quite low uh, electrification rate. Uh, the situation is a little bit made more complicated by, um, by the kind of conflicts that uh, have been uh, present in the area of late, so there is a, a substantive part of the population which is uh, displaced, that there are a lot of, of conflicts, and there are hard to reach location in uh, countries where there are wars of violence, thinking northern, uh, northern Nigeria, northern uh, uh, Cameroon, I'm thinking, for example, uh, southern and eastern uh, Somalia, uh, South Sudan, so you can see it is not very, very easy to always to, I mean, it's not only a matter of planning or technology, it's also quite linked to the political situation. <laughs> in addition, if you think about uh, lack of access to energy only in a rural community, I think it is a kind of uh, idea that is not uh, like that. There are a lot of uh, 
with the phenomenon of ur ur urbanization become more and more and more important, there is a lot of, the, of people uh, residing in urban area that uh, they don't have access because they are very much based on kind of frail, old, over, overburned kind of greed. So this is uh, a problem. So I say improvements, no doubts, but still, uh, I have to say, a lot of work, a lot of work to do. Moving always in the SDG 7, moving in the issue of clean cooking, and um, I have to say, this is a matter where I'm quite, uh, I'm quite unhappy myself, I have to say. Uh, <laughs> I mean, the, the improvement has been minimal because between 2010 and 2017, we have gone from 57% to 61%, which is not much, which means that still around 3 billion uh, people of the world population don't have access to safe and clean uh, cooking. So again, here a lot of improvements. I have to say, and this I put it to myself as the head, the, the global head of for energy extractives, I think sometimes I really think what else we can do because I always try to, uh, to help all the institutions to get more money, to do more, but I have to say not, I'm, I, I would have liked to be more successful in this area. Going into the, always part of the SDG 7, the, uh, I would say this is a far better picture from the viewpoint of the renewables penetration. So nowadays, 17.5% um, of the energy consumed in the world is generated by renewables. I have to say the, uh, the growth rate is very, very high, the highest that has been in the last 12 years. Uh, of course, it, it has to do with competitiveness. So it's really about, it used to be about policy making, uh, now it is really about the market, actually renewables are very competitive with any other fuel. So they are there to stay and they are there to move, uh, to move pretty quick. Uh, I have to say we are very, very, very supportive of renewables, always, always been. I have to say I, the vast majority of our annual lending, the group that I lead as an annual lending of around $8 billion per year, the vast majority goes uh, either directly or indirectly to, to renewables, but I have to say I like to think that renewables are, are not alone. It's not, only, it's not a standalone technology. Technology is all together. So we look very much about, about uh, having renewables with storage, which is very important. Electrochemical storage is running very, very, very quick, moving from the automotive industry into power systems. Uh, renewables with gas whenever is necessary in order to accelerate the arrival of, of renewables. Uh, power systems, I mean certainly we look at them a lot because in many of our countries where you have um, losses, I'm talking about technical losses of 15, 16, 20 percent, it's not only a matter of adding more uh, capacity, it's really a matter to, to use it correctly. But I have to say this is very, very important. A point I would like to make is the point of affordability. It is not only access to electricity, uh, it is also how much does it cost, because it's not only a matter of uh, a kind of technical as access, it's economic access. So I have to say the good news on, on, on renewables certainly are very, very helpful uh, for the for the population. So this is uh, on energy efficiency, we see, we see improvements, but I mean, I have to say not again, a little bit like in clean cooking, not as quick as we would have liked. I mean, it is, uh, 
I don't know. I mean, a good friend of mine always made a joke that uh, energy efficiency is the long, the low hanging fruit, <laughs> but it must be really very well ring fenced because, <laughs> because though it's not easy to pick up. So, having said that, and just to conclude, I know. I mean, I've just had five minutes. Uh, <laughs> I have to say, well, I leave you a little bit with two thoughts. One of them is that um, in our calculation, in the years that goes between 2018 and 2030, there is a need of further, further investment uh, for a cumulative number of around $1.3 trillion. I have to say I'm not a big believer in these kind of numbers because they are too big and they are too, too large in numbers. But certainly, I would say, I'm a big believer in working together public and private sector. And this is not the kind of uh, the party line of the World Bank. This is a, a real, the real thing. I think that uh, uh, it is very, very important. And if we want to get to, this, uh, to, the, to the objectives of the SDG 7, certainly uh, it is a very, very, very important point. Uh, and the second thing that I will never stop saying more and more is the importance of technology. I think that um, technology, in my opinion, will be the accelerator that will move us quicker, as quick as possible, to, uh, to a world of clean, affordable, and secure energy, because that's, at the end, what we want. So we are working a lot on, uh, at the moment on, uh, on batteries. I want to say batteries represent less than 5%. Batteries in power systems represent less than 5% of the total of batteries around. It is a kind of world which is moving very quick, and I finished it. Thank you. Now that's a that's a great. You put a lot of things on the table, and I will kind of come back to you. Uh, I definitely want to talk a little bit more about cooking, but also see if we can drill uh, more deeply into some of the success stories that uh, yeah. and what the countries that are lagging behind might learn from the success stories. Um, Spencer, I want to come to you. You know, you come to CSIS, you give the outlook of BP. Uh, you've done this for a few years now. And, and this year, so you added a section talking about the link between energy consumption, the human development index. Um, so talk to us a little bit about how you think about this, this uh, overarching challenge that we have. Uh, yes, thank you. So first of all, uh, thank you to Sarah, Nikos, uh, 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 and CSIS for, for both uh, today's session, but also launching this program of work, talking about the dual challenges, the dual challenge that the energy system faces, which Sarah identified, this sort of need, on the one hand, to eradicate energy poverty, but on the other hand, also to do that in a way consistent with reducing carbon emissions. And so um, another way of saying that in more simple terms is the world needs more energy and less carbon. And we are very familiar with these dual challenges. They are written into all the major touchstones that we're all working towards reflect both of these two things. If you look at the Paris Climate Goals, they talk very, very clearly about the need to reduce carbon emissions, but in a way which, at the same time, you eradicate poverty. If you look at the Sustainable Development Goals, we have SDG 7, which Ricardo was just talking about, access for energy for all. And we have SDG 13, which is talking about climate mitigation. So this idea of these dual challenges, this need for more energy and less carbon is well understood. And um, we're doing dismally on both of them. Um, if you think about carbon, if you just look at last year, carbon emissions, we estimate, grew by 2% uh, last year. That's the fastest growth rate we've seen for seven or eight years. So they're not falling, they're not even slowing, 
they're accelerating. That growth in carbon emissions last year was around 0.6 gigatons. What does 0.6 gigatons mean? It's equivalent to increasing the number of cars on the planet by around a third. So around another 400 million cars on the planet last year, equivalent. Just to put in that perspective, we talk a lot about electric cars. There's about a total 5 million electric cars on the planet. Last year's growth of carbon emissions, 400 million. Okay, so we're not doing well on climate. But likewise, we're not doing well in the need for more energy. And, and uh, Ricardo just took us through that. Um, we, we're, it's now less than a billion people um, ha don't have access to electricity. But it's a bit frightening than when it's less than a billion. We think that's good news. Uh, we, we then have three billion people will poison uh, their families tonight uh, because they don't have access to clean cooking fuels. In, in the report that Ricardo was referring to, I think the UN estimate that some, almost four million people will die premature deaths this year due to the, uh, not having access to clean cooking fuels. And the same next year, and the same the year um, after that. In the work we did on the Human Development Index, linking energy to Human De Development Index, we estimate that something that around 80% of the world's population live in countries where increases in energy go hand in hand with very significant improvements in human development. And so we clear the world needs more energy. So the world is, not on, the world is on an unsustainable path in terms of climate, but the world needs more energy in terms of um, enriching lives and, and, and to continue to grow and prosper. This is well understood, and I said, as, as we said, we understand these are written into our major touchstones that, that drive all of us. What I worry about is this balance between more energy and less carbon is becoming somewhat lopsided. So you go to big meetings, say you're at the World Economic Forum, and you're sitting in the World Economic Forum, there'd be big oil and gas companies like, like BP, there'd be governments, there'll be major investors, and typically there'll be um, strong advocates from um, climate advocates making the case for the need to reduce carbon emissions. Every argument that they're making are right, they're real, they're urgent, I agree with all of them. What I worry about is I don't often have in the same room people making the need for more energy and the need and the importance of that energy development. And so this, this debate of more energy, less carbon, is becoming lopsided with, with enormous amounts of emphasis on less carbon and quite considerable less emphasis on the need for more energy. That type of lopsidedness and, and that sort of emphasis that's given is encouraged, I'm afraid, by when the World Bank announces they're no longer going to invest in upstream oil and gas, that reinforces that. When some of the world's major central banks around the world talk about greening the financial system, it reinforces that. That seems to suggest, well, actually, there's clearly, a, there's clearly a hierarchy here about what matters more rather than the other. Where I think, for me, the only sustainable path for the global energy system is we need to take account of both of these objectives. We can't carry on producing energy in a way which doesn't take account of the impact that will have on long-term climate. But likewise, we can't go around, we can't start tackling the climate problem in a way which ignores the fact that huge portions of a third of the population, just look around, one in three of us in terms of the world don't have access to clean cooking facilities, one in three. Okay, and so this is the point, so what I hope and what I, why we are so keen to support this initiative is to try and sort of rebalance 
this thing. It's written into all our objectives, the Sustainable Development Goals. It's written into Paris. But let's try and remember that there's a dual challenge we have to face here and that we need to try and crack both of them at the same time because thinking of one rather than the other is not a sustainable path. Great. Thank you, Spencer. We'll come back to some of the things that you put on the table. I want to turn to Mafalda and get your perspective on uh, climate investment funds and how you think about this challenge. Thank you very much. <coughs> the good news is that we have been trying to do exactly what Spencer was talking about. Uh, think about the ways and the mechanisms that we actually um, tackle both the climate and the energy poverty agendas. Um, for those of you who are not familiar with the climate investment funds, this, was a, this is a set of multilateral funds that were established in 2008, a peak of the financial crisis, um, to basically help uh, developing countries uh, make different investment decisions and do it uh, with the support of the multilateral development banks, a group of multilateral development banks like the World Bank, who have the technical and the financial capability and the on-the-ground knowledge in developing countries um, to, help, um, to help demonstrate and pilot uh, new investments, new business uh, approaches. Um, so this is what we've been doing. Most of what we do is in the energy sector. Uh, out of our more than $8 billion um, in capital, uh, more than six uh, goes to energy transition in middle-income countries and energy access in uh, low-income countries. Um, and we are on track uh, in the next couple of years to have supported uh, 30 gigawatts of new renewable energy new renewable energy install capacity in a number of countries and support uh, energy access to 8.5 million people. Just to put this in perspective, I mean, the US is a big country, so these numbers might not be very significant. Um, but um, the 30 gigawatt is the equivalent of the whole power install capacity of Vietnam, or even more than Vietnam and Netherlands as a country and 8.5 million um, people with energy access through renewable energy sources is the equivalent of the population of Switzerland or Sierra Leone. Um, and so I, I agree that, you know, Ricardo touched on a very important point, which is core to uh, our concerns as well. And the reason why these type of funds exist uh, the issue, one of the trade-offs that exists, I mean, so we, here we are talking about trade-offs between, and we are putting it like that, is there a trade-off between tackling the energy problems and the climate problems? Is there a trade-off between SDG 7 and SDG 13? Um, and so there are, there are trade-offs. One of the important trade-offs to bear in mind is affordability. <coughs> is affordability to consumers. Uh, because whether we like it or not, and I keep hearing people talk a lot about cost of the technology have come down. They have come down. And they are making these investments more affordable and less costly in developing countries. They are still more costly in developing countries than in developed countries for a number of reasons. It's just not, we don't have to think only about, we can't think only about the cost of the technology. We have to think about cost of capital um, and other risks that imply premiums um, on higher premiums on equity and uh, higher costs in terms of debt that exist in developing countries that are not the same in developed countries. Um, and so, and, and therefore, you know, we, basically these countries have two ways of looking at it. Either they pass it through to consumers and then the issue of affordability 
or they take it on into the f the f their fiscal space. So that would have a fiscal impact in terms of the country's budgets. So this is, is, is precisely, and we f have to find ways of achieving the carbon, the, the climate objectives while ensuring affordability and while ensuring that we are not constraining fiscally these countries. This is why you know, the mechanisms like the climate investment funds exist. Um, because we provide finance, we blend our finance with the ones from the multilateral development banks, the private sector, other uh, entities, and, and we are able to bring down the cost of capital and take on risks that others are not well prepared uh, to take. Um, and, and because of that, as I said, uh, enable or drive investment decisions in a different way, in, in a clean and resilient uh, way. I'll stop here for the time being. I mean, I can give examples. We have plenty of examples. I know Sarah said, you know, we should uh, focus on examples, but maybe you... That's the next round. I'm coming. You're, you're not going to get away without examples, so we'll get into... Uh, Ricardo, I also saw you scribbling away, so I also wanted to see if you wanted to respond to something you heard yeah, before I... I, uh, <laughs> I have to say, I... I can understand that if uh, the only thing you attend is the WEF, uh, the World Economic Forum, you may have the perception that uh, the dialogue is about uh, uh, emissions and not access. Actually, I, I have to say uh, the dialogue is about everything at the same time. I mean, I think that everybody in this, uh, in this room has heard a million times the words about affordable, secure and clean energy. The truth of the matter is that you have to do the three things at the same time. But you see, this is not a global thing. It's not that we are here and we say, hey, we have to do everything at the same time. It is a work that you have to do country by country, specific by specific, because every country is different in terms of endowments, in terms of uh, how much solar irradiation they have, how much wind they have, do they have fossil fuels, and all the rest. So, Every country, and I'm very proud that the World Bank tried to help each country as much as possible, has to define what is their, their energy policy for the next 30 years. Because you see, we can build, all of us, a huge amount of power plants, and in five years we have access to everybody. <laughs> the only problem is that, in well, to almost everybody, of course, but, but at a certain point, are these power plants going to be obsolete? Are we, build, are we locking us in on a future that is not the future we all want and we all need? So where we find that the countries that, that we work with, that where there is a weakness, is really planning. And that's where we want to help them. Because if you want to have at country level, at the same time, access as quick as possible, if you want to say to have at the same time clean energy, affordable energy, secure energy, you have to plan. And that's where there is a lot of, of difficulty. I have to say, I, I find that the international community understand very, very well the issue of getting there all together. I mean, I think that, uh, I think that the, the idea that uh, nobody should be left behind in terms of energy transition that came out uh, for, with a lot of strength around a couple of years ago. It's a great point. So you have, to, you have to make sure that we get to clean energy, but in a way where 
access is, is solved and in a way that is, uh, that is, uh, uh, that is as clean as possible. So I, I think and I strongly believe that this, these three uh, objectives must be dealt with at the same time and must be dealt country by country and of course uh, with uh, regional integration as a big answer because we don't want to see countries that build a lot of uh, uh, plants when they could actually import at, uh, at better prices from their neighbors. So a lot of work to be done. But yeah, I don't see this dichotomy in this way and certainly I don't see an imbalance. So um, if it was just the World Economic Forum, then I'd be somewhat relaxed. I, I don't think it is just the World Economic Forum. So have we seen central bank reports talking about the financial stability risks of insufficient investment in investment in, in energy? You want to think about a significant financial stability risk? We have insufficient investment in energy, and that slows global growth. Where's all global growth, the vast majority of global growth, come to come from in the next 20 years? It's come from the developing world. What is absolutely essential for that developing world is access to energy. And so if we don't have enough investment in energy, what's the, uh, how much, is, how much uh, impact would that have? How many shareholder resolutions have we had asking us about what are we doing to make sure that we are providing clean, affordable energy to all? None. So I don't think, I don't think it's my imagination, Ricardo. I think the, 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 the conversation at the moment is imbalanced. Uh, and I think it's, it's there in terms, of, in terms of within the investors we speak to. I think it's there within, if we, I'm sure we could, if you like, we could go and do a media search about how many articles have been written about these two topics. Uh, and I think it is in the official world as well in terms of the commentary. And I think that the point here is we all agree it's in SDG 7 and SDG 13. It's in the Paris goals. We all we accept them. But I think in just in terms of the dialogue out there at the moment, there's an imbalance. And this is why I think trying to think about the dual challenge and how we manage to do the dual challenge, I think is important. Well, Father, I wanted to ask you, because in some ways, the type of projects that you focus on are sort of in a way, they, they go away from that trade-off because they're all about the synergy between the, 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 uh, both on the climate and on the energy side as well as on the carbon side. So, I mean, do you have that same perspective or do you see that there's a lot, enough synergy there that it's less conflict? I, I, I don't, I, I mean, at least in the world that we live, and Ricardo probably, you know, it's a similar world, development world, you know, we, we, we have to take, to, to take these two things into consideration at the same time. There's no way we are going to tackle development if we don't think about energy poverty, but we also know that if we don't tackle climate change, you know, we are, we are jeopardizing development and we will be jeopardizing development. Um, and so, you know, this is why to me, I, I don't see it as Spencer sees it, that it's very tilted towards too much S SDG 13 and not SDG 7. I think there's been a lot of discussions and a lot of focus on SDG 7, and basically, you know, a lot of focus on what else do we, do we need to do to, to help the countries. And therefore, you know, the, the plea from many countries, from many developing countries, precisely to increase the amount of support through mechanisms like climate investment funds, through multilateral development banks and others, to, to, to help them deal with these trade-offs that, that we were basically talking about. Um, and there are, you know, 
very encouraging examples. I mean, we, we certainly have a tremendous amount, you know, a large number of, of projects that, uh, that, that basically demonstrate, most of the countries actually where we've worked in middle-income countries or low-income countries, what we have done um, is first of its kind investments. Uh, so we were pioneering the renewable energy investments in a variety of technologies, CSP, geothermal, solar, you know, wind, because remember 2008, I said we started in 2008, peak of financial crisis, these investments were not happening in developing countries. We've come a long way. You know, when I think about uh, Mexico and, and, you know, we were there, at the time we were there, there were 85 megawatts of wind power installed. Now there's 4.3 gigawatts. We were, you know, there in the, in the, in the initial um, private sector operations to basically provide the confidence to the market, provide the confidence to, to the private sector uh, investors. In Morocco now, Morocco has become a tremendous example and, and case that is quite often conveyed in media. Uh, where they basically set up these ambitious targets of, you know, 42% of their of their energy metrics from renewable energy by 2020. They've already increased that, and they said we're going to put up two gigawatt of solar power, um, concentrated solar. They started to invest in concentrated solar power where when it was a lot more expensive than it is. And um, you were involved. And we were involved with the World Bank, with African Development Bank, with you know other financiers. Uh, these are very large investments. We've, we put half a billion dollars. We brought down the, the costs of the power together. Uh, we've enabled the country to go through, you know, industrial integration, create jobs, develop industries, both in solar and wind. So it's not even just a matter of providing energy access there. There was also uh, more than a million people with energy access through these investments, but industrial integration, creating jobs in industries. Um, so can I ask you on that, Morocco, if I could just pick up on that. Uh, you know, part of, and I want to come back to you, Ricardo, on the Don't same worry. kind of idea of trying to learn from success stories, yeah. right? So, you know, what did you learn from that experience that if a new country that you're not necessarily working in or it's a new area, you know, what, what are the lessons that you took from some of those examples that you would like to replicate? And I want to come back on the same question to you, Ricardo, later on electricity access and some of the mm -hmm. success stories, but maybe start with Mafalda on that. I mean, so again, this is work uh, by the World Bank, which we have supported, and Ricardo maybe was going to reflect on is There's this rise uh, report that, uh, so there, the, the World Bank does this analysis of 133 countries globally, and where they are in terms of sustainable energy policies, both on energy access, and renewable energy, and energy efficiency. And, and it's very good to see the progress. You know, we had in 2010, 37% of, of these 133 with national renewable energy targets. Right now we have 93%. We had only 60% of the countries with, renewable, with legal frameworks for renewable energy deployment. Now we have 84%. You know, our experience has shown these are important building blocks, foundational blocks. When we started to work in Morocco, for example, these were in place, they were being perfected over time, these were in place. It's good to see that the countries you know, have come a long way with the support of many institutions to get to this, um, to this point. Um, so some of the other um, lessons that we have learned, 
uh, I think it's very important. W one of the things that uh, we have learned is the importance of not thinking about this on a project by project basis. We have to think about the power sector. We have to think about the energy sector as a whole, like Ricardo was saying. Think, think, you know, work with the countries in thinking about the sector as a whole, and how do we go about the transition, and 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 come up with, you know, s packages of investments that are coherent and bring different partners together with their best capability, technical and financial, to bear. Uh, we think, you know, this this is uh, this is quite important. We've also. You know, it, it also become very clear to us that you know th this type of finance, concessional finance, is really important because of the trade-offs we were uh, talking about. Um, so th I think there there will and and in this concessional finance, um, in there we've also learned that it is really important the predictability, the scale, and the predictability of the finance and the flexibility. Why? Because there are tough reforms to be made that some of which are difficult from a political economy point of view. So bringing a number of partners aligned in support of these governments and countries towards that vision and, and signaling very clearly there will be the scale of investments, the predictability of the finance, but the flexibility because if things change we will be able to adjust was something that we've also learned was um, quite important. Ricardo, I want to come to you. I've, I've already teed up my question, but uh, I still want to find out why we are so bad at making progress on the cooking side. Okay. So I, I was wondering if you could also toss in a little bit of, a, of an answer there. You mean the numbers that you presented are startling. You know, the electricity, a lot of progress, the numbers going down, the cooking is just not really changing. Okay. Let me, first of all, you are too lucky, Nikos, because you read my notes. Oh, I see. Uh, <laughs> which is monumentally unfair. It's a case of cheating, and uh, would you rather um, ask a question that you no, didn't have notes? No, it's fine. It's fine. It's fine. It's got a big bit saying, "Don't ask." <laughs> okay, so I mean, uh, let's be clear. I mean, it is a success moving from uh, 1.1 billion people without access to electricity to 840 million, especially because demographic demographic growth in many of these countries is huge. But uh, why do you think why we are not doing very well in clean cooking. In my opinion, it is really uh, three things. Uh, one of all is uh, uh, the lack of, uh, many times, the lack of social acceptability of uh, on new cooking device. I have to say we found ourselves in this problem many, many times. And, um, and certainly, if you think about it, all of you, as human beings, it ta food tastes different, cooked in one way or the other. And if you spent 300, 400 years cooking food in the same way, well, it's not very, very easy to, to change. So, so social acceptability is a big thing. Believe me, I hate uh, the, the number of clean cooking because I know that it has a huge gender component. Because regrettably, the ones who are going to, to suffer more are, are female, obviously. So you see, it goes back. You have to move everything at the same time. You cannot do otherwise. Uh, I have to say that uh, other things are the, the fact that there are so many different solutions that, um, that often governments have difficulty to choose to pick one instead of the other. So it is a, and, and third, last but not least, if I see the amount of grant money that goes to, 
to the subject of access, to the subject of clean energy, uh, the, such a, su the subject of clean cooking remains a little bit behind. It's not acceptable. Uh, I, I told you at the very beginning, I take uh, some of the responsibility for myself as well, uh, being able to, to, to have a better coalition behind this. Then you ask a, a question before, what are your examples of success or how, who did it well? Kenya did it well in, uh, in electricity access because they were able to, to take the, to look at the picture all together and to plan. I will never stop saying that planning is key in the energy sector. It's key. It was key in our countries. It's still key in our countries, by the way, because the energy sector is a, is a sector that, from a technological viewpoint, changed very, very, very quick. So the risk to remain with stranded assets is, is very high. Kenya did very well because at the same time they, they, they knew that they had to provide electricity in the cities to the less, less favored part of the population. And they knew that they had a problem of payments there, of illegal hooking up. So they, we worked a lot together and they moved towards prepaid cards. You know, what is really interesting is that human beings are, in my opinion, and I don't care uh, whatever you think, are always very honest. Their level of honesty to the people is huge. And as soon as the, this poor part, of, or less well-off part of the population in, uh, in this urban uh, area had the possibility to prepay for two, three hours of electricity, whatever they need, they all did it. They all pay because in the reality, people are like that. I worked many years in Russia and, and you can see people do pay. So the other thing that they thought, they thought about rural areas. What kind of solution do I have? So they look at solutions like uh, ohm solar systems. They look at mini grid and nano grid and whatever. And they were able to access that. And actually think about Kenya with uh, the northern border with uh, with south, with uh, sorry, the, the right, the the eastern border with Somalia. I mean, it's an area with a great conflict, as you, all of you know very well. So they were able to to work with the local communities in order to have people to have electricity, to pay for it, and uh, so you and and make sure that it was not going to be destroyed. So Kenya, you see, you can do it, but you have to segment. You have to segment what kind of what kind of the population you want to address, how to do it, and all the rest. Uh, if you allow me, uh, different case, Senegal, and we're working with Senegal. Senegal have important offshore gas, gas uh, reserves. They use a lot of uh, uh, HFO diesel, very polluting for their, for their access. So we're working with them. We don't finance the upstream, but we, we, we work with our money a lot with, uh, with Senegal in order to develop these assets in order to replace more polluting fuel with less polluting fuel. So you are going to get, well, um, Senegal is not bad in access, but you are going to have more access by replacing fuels while at the same time developing renewables because you don't want to stay behind in the technology curve. You want to move. So I want to say there are so many examples of success. There are also examples of lack of success. Of course, I will not say the, main, the name of the country. Countries that have built a huge capacity of, uh, 
of power plants where, let's say, their, <laughs> their capacity is 4.5, this is a, a real case, 4.5 uh, gigawatt, their peak demand is 2.7. But since a lot of these contracts are take or pay, they have to pay. So now you have problems with, the, with public finance and so on and so forth. So you see planning, 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 and then I, I finalize regional integration. You don't need to build each one. These are not island where, of course, you have to have your own system. You can integrate system and reduce the footprint and increase access and improve affordability. Finished. <laughs> Thank you. I want to do a, a couple of very quick questions, but then I'm going to come to you. So if you have questions, start, start thinking about them. Um, Spencer, number one, if you want to react to some of the things you heard, but also, um, and I want to ask the same thing for you, Mafalda, talk a little bit about non-power, because I think one of the questions that we always end up is, we make a lot of progress yeah. on power, are we making enough progress? And I know uh, the climate investment funds, you've worked on some urban transport, so maybe talk about some of the other areas, um, and, and Spencer, obviously you talk about uh, uh, this a lot in the, in the outlook as well. Yeah, I guess just a, an observation for me. Um, when you think about SDG 7, about energy access, it's the, the intent is trying to capture and harness the value that energy can, can bring to, to the well-being of people. That's what it's trying to do. And if you like, one component of that is the energy which is available to households. But that's only one component. An equally important one is the available of energy to industry to allow industry to be productive. There's a third component, which is the way energy can then build communities. So do you have energy for schools? Do you have energy for hospitals? And the good news is there's this unbelievably good framework which captures all of those components, which is the World Bank's multi-tier framework. And it captures all three of those components. And it also does it in a very rich way. Because the trouble with the way we are sort of forced to measure SDG 7 on electricity is very binary. Do you have access to electricity or not? It's zero, one. Where there's lots of really interesting analysis in, in the tracking report that Ricardo was referring to is when you say, well, how many people can actually afford to buy a minimum level of electricity? the number's far, far less than 89%. So 89% may have access to electricity, but how many can have real access to electricity in a way that we think of access is completely different. So I think, and so A, that's, so when we think about energy, I think we need to think about all of these dimensions. It's not just households, it's businesses, it's communities. And as a result of it, it's not just electricity. Uh, you need other types of energy to, to do this. And I think, I guess, what I'm slightly worried about, the spirit of SDG 7 is that. The measurement of SDG 7 is this. And, and that's okay because we have to measure things that we can measure, but let's not think that we're almost there when, when really the, the, the spirit of it is a far broader measure. Um, so this was actually a very good uh, question. Are we, are we making progress in the urban sector and uh, transport? Um, so I think, you know, We've identified four challenges, so the, our next wave of support is going to focus very much on these challenges. One still is on the renewable energy space, but it's renewable energy integration. We have to um, realize, I mean, recognize that we need a lot more renewable energy power generation um, to meet 
both the energy poverty and the climate goals, um, but a lot of this uh, is intermittent in nature. So we have to work in, in making sure that through storage investments and you know, uh, managing the grid um, in ways that can integrate all of this uh, renewable energy power. So that's one area, uh, and storage is, is one where World Bank and other MDBs with ourselves, we intend to make significant investments in the, in the next uh, few years. Um, the other one is urban. Urban, we are not making much progress. Um, and, and I think there's a, a, a clear realization, despite you know, uh, the numbers out there, two-thirds of the population are going to be in urban areas, 60% of urban land to be developed. Um, and so you know, we, we are, um, the, the, urban the urban growth models we have uh, are not adjusted to a future where you know, we basically meet the different SDGs. And so we do need, we, we do intend to, uh, to work with multilateral development banks and other partners to pilot and test new urban growth models uh, in a number of cities in developing countries. Transport um, is another area that um, you know, we, we do intend to fold it under our, also our urban uh, work. But I, I, I tend to say, you know, I, I, I do it you know, in very general terms, uh, we should be seeing as much progress as we have seen in the energy sector and in transport, and we haven't. For very good reasons that we don't have time to explore here, but what we do need to see, even though, I mean, of course, the energy sector agenda is far from being finalized, but the transport sector is much behind. When you um, say much behind, in what sense much behind? I mean, we are not uh, making, so I, I can tell you, you know, we've, we've been trying for 10 years to have a lot more, for example, urban transport projects. And when we compare our, our transport portfolio with our renewable energy portfolio, it's a lot more complex. Um, and, and we haven't, even though the finance was available to, to make those investments, most of them haven't progressed. The way I think about um, it, Spencer, is that I think we're, when you talk about lopsided, I think there's a lot of EV focus and a little bit less yeah, urban so I, transport. So I, yeah. I think the idea of trying to get renewables into transport <laughs> it, it, via electricity, it shouldn't be the definition of success. I mean, energy efficiency in transportation has been unbelievable. And it's sort of orders of magnitude more important. If you look forward the next 20 years, even if you had extortionate growth, massive, massive growth in electric cars, the gains you will make in carbon emissions from, any, from, from internal combustion engine coming, engines becoming more efficient are literally an order of magnitude, literally an order of magnitude more important than, than penetrating electric cars. Uh, and so when we're looking at success, success is reducing carbon emissions. Yeah. Success is not increasing renewables, it's, inc it's reducing carbon emissions. And for transport, a really efficient way of reducing carbon emissions at the moment is, um, is making cars more efficient. And so, pound for pound, what do you get for your bigger bank? Subsidising electric cars or subsidising people to throw away cars which are 15 years old and replace them with a, with a, with a new car? And so, success can take many forms and we should keep our eye on the goal. The goal is energy and, and carbon, not renewables per se. Yeah. But I, I have to say, mm, this is uh, 
nobody's making the case that the case in transport is about renewables. No. What we would like to do and what we try to do is, for example, to replace a large public fleet yes. of very old vehicles with vehicles with other fuel. I'm thinking about compressed gas. I'm thinking about other fuels like that. Ultimately, I would be very, very happy at a certain point to see every, every car to be electric and, uh, and with electricity generated by, by wind and solar. I don't think I will be here anymore when this will happen, not meaning here in this room, obviously. <laughs> and, uh, and, um, but yeah, I think we are talking about two yes. different things. I mean, we have a big work, especially, I mean, uh, I've worked a lot in Africa. I'm the head of infrastructure of Africa as well. I mean, they need to renew the fleet. I mean, this is certainly a, a case. Let me, uh, you're putting a lot on the table and we can keep going forever, but I hope want to bring- The food is there, by the way. <laughs> yes, but we have another panel before uh, the, for the warm-up. <laughs> Just to well, say, I mean, I didn't finish, but the other area that I think we ought to pay attention to is industry, yeah. is carbon intensive industries and how we decarbonize those industries as well. So that's another area that we are quite interested in. It's a great question for any of you if you want to get more. You can ask that question. So let's do questions. Three rules at CSIS. One, wait for the mic. Second, introduce yourself. Third, question in the form of a question. And my bonus point for brevity. Um, and we'll do uh, three at a time so we can get as many in. Uh, so let's start from the back right there. Mr. Dale, my name is Tom Cochran. I'm retired. Um, do you believe? Uh, as an economist, that uh, fossil fuels carry a substantial social cost, do you believe that that cost should be internalized in the price of the product? And if so, how best to do that? Okay. Uh, any other right here? Then I'll take a third one. Uh, Bob Eichord from the Atlantic Council. Hi. Ricardo, how are you? I'm as you look at the issue of designing rural electrification or rural energy programs, how do you, then, how do you assess the issues related to whether grid extension makes the most sense? Yeah. Or as we've seen the development of the decentralized renewable affordable takes options, um, that is, is that uh, it, are countries moving in that direction? Or are they still wedded with central rural electrification? And particularly, Spencer, in light of your comment about the importance of productive uses and income generation, how does that factor into it? Okay. And, uh, third one, Bernie. Okay. Let's take these two then. Uh, Spencer, it, it was prefaced with economists, so I think it was <laughs> directed at, at you. Hold on, let me so uh, energy uh, has both very significant social benefits. It also has social costs, clearly in the form of both local air quality uh, and also in terms of climate. Um, the key thing is the benefits are, can, are often internalized by the people who produce them, so that's okay, but the costs are not internalized. And so the way to think about the best way of doing that is to, to price that externality. And the simple way of pricing that externality is a carbon price. That's by far and away the most efficient thing to do. It's the glaring thing that the world needs to do if it wants to get serious about climate. And it's the thing that the world's not making an awful lot of progress on. Um, uh, as an economist, carbon pricing seems to me just so obviously the right thing to do. 
Um, and as B at BP, <coughs> we are being strong advocates for carbon pricing for, for many years, and we will continue to be strong advocates for carbon pricing for many years um, to come. Um, I, I, I've got the floor, but Ricardo knows far more about this than I do. It seems to me this is a really big issue. I we were chatting about it in the, in the, in the room next door, because I, I don't know the answer. I, your instinct is for, for developing, and I'm, I'm, so I'm just telling you as an ignorant person here, I don't, this is not a well-developed view, but your instinct is I can understand the value of microgrids because when you've got very little money and you've got very little power demand, the rational way of doing that was the microgrid or, or some sort of micro-decentralized grid. But if you want to aspire to a fully functioning economy, you know a set of microgrids won't be the, the, the efficient way of doing it because we know there's enormous benefits from having centralized and connected processes. So question mark, is there a way of designing smart microgrids which you can start with a smart one but then they, 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 you can join them in an efficient way? I think up till now, history has said that you start with microgrids and you often then scrap those when you go to a more centralized one and so it's not an efficient process. If there's not, and this is a question from Ricardo, is this the value, is this where, you know, there's a real credit constraint here because the optimal solution is to jump to a more centralized one. Many countries are too poor. And that's when there's a role for development banks, multilateral institutions, because they can solve the credit constraint. It allows you to go closer to a first best solution. Yeah. I, I have to say, first of all, carbon price, we, at the World Bank, we do have a carbon price. And I think that in our, when we calculate uh, whether we want to be involved in a, a project, yes or not. So I, I think we all agree it's very, very important. Uh, the question of, uh, of greed versus uh, of greed. I have to say it is really for me a matter of, of planning, really. I mean, we, it is a matter of planning and a matter to know country one by one. All countries are very different. Of course, the um, density of the population is key because building a extending the grid for just a small and sparse amount of the population it would be uh, absolutely I mean, uh, illogic. So we, to be honest, we are not, and I'm very proud of it, we are not, we don't have a kind of uh, bias towards anything. I mean, we have cases where we have uh, financed with our money grid extension. Other times we have financed grid densification because there was already an extension, but it needed to be densified. Uh, other times we've gone uh, for, for uh, mini-grid or, or nano-grid, maybe at a certain point to, to, to reach the grid, who knows? And, and sometimes we've gone to home systems. So I think the important, I think it's very, very difficult, different solutions depending on the need of the population. And uh, yeah, that's why once again, I go back to the point of planning. Something that for many of us is a given is not always a given. There are many countries that are not able to properly plan the demand uh, of electricity in the next 10 years, coming from household, commerce, or industry. And, and in that case, it's very, very difficult to have an efficient, uh, an efficient energy policy. Father, do you want to add something or not? No, I mean, I, I, I agree. I mean, I worked extensively in Africa. I've lived I mean, in several countries in Africa. This point on density of population is a critical one. As you travel in vast countries like Mozambique or Tanzania or, or others, um, you know, you, you, you clearly see there are many locations where grid extension does not make sense. 
you have to find different alternatives. We, we wouldn't even foresee like industrial development in those areas. It's, it's really about providing certain energy services to the population that are quite dispersed. Um, and in terms of the first question, um, yes, I, I, I think uh, the two things that should happen, one is fossil fuel subsidies being eliminated because they are still quite significant and much higher than subsidies that are being provided to renewable energy globally. And the second one is price on carbon. Okay, we'll do one last round of questions before we move on to the next panel. Uh, let's start in the back there. Uh, Francisco Alvarez, an independent consultant from Guadalajara, Mexico. Um, as a young economist, I appreciate carbon pricing, but I wonder whether I wor worry whether that measure really captures the urgency of climate change. Um, speaking today, UN Secretary General Antoni um, Antonio uh, Guterres mentioned uh, a need to a stop to new construction of coal plants by 2020 and also urge countries to stop dedicating taxpayer funds to any construction of uh, future power um, coal uh, fueled power plants and I've also read about measures to start penalizing banks and other financial intermediaries for extending credit for um, new exploration of oil extraction so I'm wondering if those may be h harder measures that we need to capture the urgency for a climate change policy. Thank you. Okay, thank you. There we had a couple of questions up here. We'll take these two and then we'll open it for the answers. Hi, uh, Madison Sturgis at Spark International. Um, in light of the Bahamas and Puerto Rico, um, I know the World Bank has said that they're not particularly um, biased towards any um, uh, I guess energy system, but um, s with evidence of climate vulnerability really being an issue for these island nations, um, what role do you think uh, microgrids would have in a preference um, to those uh, um, environments and those geographies over a centralized grid? Um, and what, what part do renewables have to play in that as well? Okay. Uh, thank you. Uh, Dave Rubin with Retired Engineer. And uh, about 50 years ago, if somebody had proposed giving telephones to everybody in Africa, the reply would have been there's not enough copper to wire the continent. Today, people in Africa have telephones because of new technology. I'm just wondering, would putting in, with the rate of change of technology and power, would putting in big grids make today make any more sense than putting in a wired telephone system 20 years ago, especially in terms of stranded assets? Okay. Three questions, three panelists. I'll let uh, each one kind of pick and choose what you want to answer. Uh, maybe start with from Mafalda and work our way back to me. Um, this is a question from Mexico, a colleague from uh, Mexico. Um, there's, I mean, we have to think uh, clearly. We have to internalize. We're talking, talking about here internalizing. Um, costs, uh, we have to internalize as human beings that we are at great risk from climate change. Um, and I think, you know, even though the, all of the rhetoric we hear, uh, oftentimes you feel that, are, are we really internalizing the urgency 
of, of the problem. That you know, if we don't make certain types of decisions and choices and investments in the next decade, we are really jeopardizing um, ourselves um, and certainly, you know, our the future generations. And so, when you look at uh, you know the, the numbers on on, on coal, um, right now for a two degree scenario, we have more installed capacity, coal installed capacity globally, than is consistent with the two degree scenario. And, and, and so, you know, and I think this is why Antonio Guterres, the Secretary General, uh, has picked this as, you know, a, a, a theme, a very strong theme in the run-up also to, to the summit. Um, so, you know, I, I do think that uh, we, we do need to, to think seriously what is it that we need to do so that the countries stop investing in coal-fired power generation, and in fact, retire the existing ones. Um, there will be different, you know, and, and therefore, you know, um, there will be, one will have to um, adjust what is needed in different countries, um, but, um, and, and think of a, a set of different measures, but uh, I, I do not think you know, personally, uh, that, you know, in continuing to invest in coal-fired power plants is anywhere consistent with, a, a, you know, uh, ensuring development and ensuring prosperity um, for ourselves. Uh, I, I, I will uh, leave the, I mean, I can, I, I don't want to, I will let uh, Ricardo talk about I'm trying to add the dual challenge of answering, but also <laughs> making sure that the next panel can start soon. Can I get one minute from either um, of you? In the spirit of the dual challenge, can I put the other side for coal? Um, last year, renewable power generation in China grew by over 25%. The increase in nuclear generation in China accounted for three quarters of the global increase in nuclear generation. Those two things together didn't even come close to meeting the growth of power demand in China last year, and as a result of which coal consumption went up. In India last year, renewable power generation grew by over 25%. That again didn't come close to meeting the growth of power demand in India <coughs> last year, as a result of which coal consumption in India went up. An average Indian consumes less than one-tenth of, an average, of energy of an average American. For them to not use coal and use uh, uh, natural gas is extraordinarily expensive. And so when we're thinking about what's right and what's wrong, if you're in the developed world, power demand's not growing. Okay, it's flat. They're trying to justify new, uh, new investment in coal-fired power stations in a world where power demand is flat is a hard ask. And I can understand that I, that I accept. What are we going to do in India? What are we going to do in China? Renewable generation growing by over 25%. It's not like it's not growing quickly. But that's not enough to meet power demand. Should we say, well, I'm afraid you can't have the power you're demanding? Or should we say, in fact, you've got to consume something which is extraordinarily more expensive than coal? 
even though your incomes are a fraction of the incomes in the West. I, I don't know there's a right and wrong here, but, but there are both, there's two sides to this thing. This is exactly the same thing as we starting from the beginning. I can understand why new, new investments in coal, coal-fired power generation feel really at odds with SDG 13. I really understand that. But there is this SDG 7 as well. And, and, and I don't know, and there's no simple answers here, but what I'm nervous about is this again. Because we all nodded, and, we, and, and, all, and the only reason for putting the other side is to, is to do that. Ricardo, wrap us up. Oh, good lord. <laughs> uh, <laughs> what can I say? I mean, I, I have to say, China uh, certainly is still uh, building coal fired plants. It's also true that compared to the plants they had, the programs they had five, ten years ago, uh, nowadays they're building far less than that. The, the issue there, because these are very complex things, and the issue there is not really global, uh, global climate uh, issues, it's the local pollution. So that's why China has decided to, to, to build uh, coal fire power plants to, to a, uh, I mean, in a, in a less important way, in a less substantial way. At the World Bank, we took the, way, we took the, uh, we took the point that we are not going to finance uh, coal fire power plants, above all because we think that what is going to be built now uh, may not be uh, useful in the future. So just to tell you, for example, which is very different from what is in Asia at the moment, I think the average uh, coal fire power plant in Asia has an age of around 12 years, so they still have 20 years to go. In Europe it's different, it's around 30 years, so you know, they're ending, going to the end of their life. But I do acknowledge that there are uh, dif different circumstances. And since your question was not only on coal, but also on other fossil fuels, I mean, it's true what Spencer said, that we, we don't finance upstream oil and gas, but it's also true that we work to, with government to make sure that they have the right choice between what they are, they are, their energy access need, and it's not only household. I would agree with you 100% on that. Uh, but uh, at the same time, they don't lock themselves or they use as clean energy as they can. So I think, you know, there are many ways to push in the same direction. Which is why we're going to have a whole year to study this topic and hopefully come back with some uh, interesting insights. But please uh, join me in thanking our speakers. And we're going to have uh, Sarah and our next panelist uh, come in right now. No break, so just give us one second to get off. And thank you to Nikos and the great first panel for getting us kicked off. I have the honor of uh, being able to moderate this panel uh, with uh, group uh, chairman, um, excuse me, group chief executive Bob Dudley uh, and president and CEO, uh, um, excuse me, uh, <laughs> group chief executive of BP, Bob Dudley. There's a lot of B's going on yeah, in the know, run up to that right. title. Uh, and the president and CEO of the Energy Futures Initiative uh, and also former Secretary of Energy, Ernie Moniz. Thank you both for joining us for this conversation. Yeah. Pleasure. So little do people know, you were listening backstage to the whole uh, conversation that we just had and sort of the framing for this. Sort of. <laughs> <laughs> 
tell us what you really think. No. Um, uh, and this whole sort of framing of this this dual challenge, right? And and the fact that we're here trying to take stock of where we stand relative to the need both to provide uh, affordable and reliable energy supplies, but also deal with the climate challenge. You both have been around the energy industry for a bit. Uh, you've seen sort of uh, the differences and the changes, the energy transitions uh, that are really quite remarkable. Probably many of you, both of you at the beginning of your careers wouldn't imagine some of the things that we've seen over the course of your careers. But, but you've, you've observed in the business that you do, in the work that you do, how people are thinking about both of these challenges and, and where we stand, you know, rather pessimistically uh, relative to where we need to be. And so I just wanted to see if you had any reflections on some of the conversation or some of that challenge as it intersects you in your work. So maybe, Bob, if you could, could start. Sure. Well, thanks. Thanks, Sarah, and thanks for being here. Uh, CSIS, and you're launching some work, in yes. fact, on, on countries and their energy needs and this dual challenge that many of you talked about earlier. Um, I think, of course, energy is always changing. When I uh, started in the industry, which is only 40 years ago, uh, I remember those days, coal was going like that and there was competition, energy and oil was coming on. Renewables were, uh, you know, a distant thought. People were talking about it, thinking about it back then. And I remember the worst thing you could do in an energy company was find natural gas. <laughs> it had no value. Nobody knew what to do with it. It was always stranded assets. And now look how the world has changed. The importance of natural gas and energy transition is very clear to me. Um, I know some people don't like natural gas, but I actually don't know how the world's going to get there without natural gas sort of displacing coal and transition over time. Uh, the, the, the amazing changes in technology that are used day to day that we take for granted in energy. It used to be very labor intensive work and the new technologies have brought down actually the human activities and the pace and scale of decisions is amazing. Mm -hmm. you know, years and years of change and of course the year that I started, 1979, at that time was regarded as one of the most dangerous years in history because you had the Iran-Iraq war, there was terrorism in this country, the Iran hostage crisis. And then things calmed to a bit and we're now back to, I think, what feels like the most dangerous year in history and the weeks <laughs> this event will show you today, this week. But, um, and then geopolitically, it just continues to change. So. Um, but I have watched the change in the, uh, the energy transitions and the move to renewables, the phase out of hydro that's now back in, nuclear, everyone was enthusiastic, that's dropped off. So all the energy mix continues to change and as you look out to 2040, I think we're still gonna need all of them mm -hmm. to actually make it. Um, that's enough. This yeah. is the real expert. Yeah. <laughs> well, no, it's a, I mean, it's a very good point. And, and uh, Secretary Moniz, maybe from your perspective, you were in government at the time that some of these goals were established, right? And the goals were established for the purposes of motivating us to try and achieve them. And since then, you've, you've seen sort of, you know, where, we, where, where we've made progress and where we haven't. How, how are you thinking about this? And particularly, you just launched a big initiative uh, last week on en en ending global energy poverty. Um, how does that sort of, you know, factor into where, where your priorities are as you think about this challenge? A lot of, a lot of moving parts in that uh, question. Um, the, uh, uh, first of all, in terms of, you mentioned goal setting uh, during uh, our, our time in government. Uh, and Paris uh, clearly was, in my view, uh, a watershed event in terms of getting uh, uh, commitments 
various kinds of commitments made by most countries in the world. And uh, but I would I would characterize it as saying that uh, at that time uh, the targets. This is obviously 2015. The targets of let's say typically 20, 30 percent reductions by 2030, 80 percent reduction by uh, by uh, by mid-century. Uh, uh, certainly seemed like uh, fairly uh, aggressive uh, but necessary uh, set of targets. Pretty short time, uh, the science has moved on. Yeah. And now what we see is uh, a general recognition that actually those were not aggressive enough uh, targets in terms of what, what has evolved. In particular, the IPCC report and the, uh, and the U.S. government national assessment. Uh, uh, and now what we see uh, is in the United States, uh, uh, certainly in Europe and, and other, some other parts of the world, um, let's go, let's say from mid-century, uh, kind of a convergence towards net zero uh, emissions, at least for the industrialized countries. I do want, maybe we'll come back to this, but I, I cannot emphasize enough the importance of attaching the word net to the word zero. Uh, the, but again, that, that's a, another, another uh, discussion. Now having said that, uh, and recognizing, I think also, by the way, uh, there's been an evolution of language. I think now climate crisis is <laughs> much more common uh, expression than climate change, and I think it's, it's quite appropriate. But two points. Uh, one is that as we look globally, and I'll comment on the energy, energy poverty uh, work. So look globally, and the last panel uh, came back to this time and time again quite correctly. Uh, it is crazy to think that we cannot balance, we don't have to find some balance uh, with economic development in the, in the least, least developed parts of the world. Mm -hmm. Because we're not going to get there otherwise. That's really the point. Uh, and indeed, uh, I think there's plenty of evidence that is that as societies uh, do uh, improve their, okay, let's call it the human development index, uh, we have a better chance of, of women empowerment, of environmental stewardship, mm -hmm. and, and all of those things. So it's going to be a very, very tough balance to strike there. Uh, on that, I will just say that um, uh, what Sarah referred to, we can discuss it more, is uh, last week uh, the, uh, the Rockefeller Foundation, uh, together with MIT, has established uh, a global commission to end energy poverty. We'll actually have an event next week in New York as well. Uh, and uh, it's co uh, I co-chair it along with um, uh, Raj Shah, who was the CEO of Rockefeller Foundation, former head of AID. He and I did a lot of work, uh, particularly in things like Power Africa uh, in, the, uh, in the Obama administration, uh, and also the, uh, the CEO of the African Development Bank. Uh, uh, we had a very lively meeting last week. Uh, I think reinforcing something the last panel discussed as well, that there's not a lot of binary choices that are going to make sense. Like, for example, there was a discussion of grid and off-grid or micro-grid or mini-grid or I even heard nano-grid, I think, from, our, from, from the World Bank. Uh, 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 nano is below your scale, but uh, anyway. Uh, the, uh, but the point is, as in all of these issues, 
it's really about getting some integration and planning. Mm -hmm. Because the idea that there is one solution for low carbon for everywhere is complete nonsense. Mm -hmm. And we're going to have to find solutions that are fit to purpose uh, and, and have strong uh, regional focus. Uh, okay. Now, the second point I was going to make, besides the, uh, that one, uh, in terms of how we manage to accommodate uh, the need for uh, dramatic action um, uh, with realities, comes from the point of view, I would say this here in United States, uh, certainly something that my colleagues and I are promoting, we call the Green Real Deal. And in that, what we're trying to emphasize is that the basic underlying principles of getting to low carbon and doing it with social justice are right on. To get there, however, we have to be pragmatic and we have to build coalitions. Mm -hmm. Coalitions are critical. I don't know of anything major that gets done in this country, I'll speak for the United States, has been done in this country, and sticks without getting a coalition together uh, across uh, many, many different segments of the, of the stakeholders. And, uh, and that's where we got to be pragmatic and get real solutions put forward and go as fast as we can to low carbon which regrettably is not as fast as many of us would like. Mm -hmm. But that's what we have to do. It doesn't help to talk about it and not actually get out there and do something and build the coalitions, do the hard work to actually make, pro make progress. Well, that's a great point. I mean, that's one of the things. And I want to come back to a, a couple of the ideas that you raised. But you know, one of the things that I think came out clearly in the panel before us is this need to take action. And there's, you know, sometimes there's a lot of uh, passing of the buck about whether it's the governments that need to take more action or companies that need to and and for Bob you know your perspective out there as a, as a business person you know trying to do deals in a lot of these countries where frankly it is quite difficult to do business for the same lack of planning reasons that I think Ricardo brought up early how do you view the role of companies in sort of navigating the position between this dual challenge or, or just trying to make those those energy investments in some of these landscapes well, I think as, as uh, the Secretary said, we're trying to solve globally probably one of the most difficult systems problems you can imagine. And we have to do that through coalitions and working together. The role of companies, of course, is a lot of, uh, a lot of you know, unfortunately, I think in many, many countries around the world, the role of business is being demonized just in general. Business is not a good thing when actually our role in society really has been to bring products to market pay taxes, make investments, uh, pay dividends to shareholders, very important. Most of the dividends, in fact, go to pension funds, often by uh, pension fund managers, states, governments. So that's been our role, uh, and we're navigating through this. I think we have to have a purpose. Our, people get up in the morning every day, work for BP for many years, saying our role in the world is to bring heat light mobility to the world. I think it's now moving on further. We've got to have an even greater purpose, which I think is helping advancing the energy transition and our role in that, as well as providing energy, heat, light, mobility to societies that desperately need it. Um, you know, there are a billion people on the planet don't have access to electricity. Can you, and none of you can imagine in this room, even think about that. And the three billion people that cook 
with wood, cow dung, kerosene, and coal. Not in their kitchens, in their homes. You think about the cost to society, the health there. So we as a, as a company, um, in the energy transition, we have lots of people, resources, energy, research, money, people. We're working coalitions in the oil and gas industry together, you know, oil and gas climate initiative, and working with governments. Not everybody wants to listen. There are swaths of the public that say, um, some say we have to solve the entire problem. Mm -hmm. I hear that, and I hear others that say, you have no right to even be in the debate. You're the cause of all the problems. Of course, those are two extremes. You know, we've got to be part of this. We've got another issue as a company, and many companies will have this issue. Uh, we could move tomorrow to be, get out of oil and gas and go into renewables. I think we'd be around for about five years, the pension funds, all the things. You know, we've got a, our role is also to create a rate of return on investment where we go away, where we don't exist. So getting the right balance, and I can think out of 20, 25, 30 years, we're going to have to manage a return and cash flows as businesses transition, just like many companies have done in the United States. A great example would be Microsoft. They went from computers and operating systems, and now they're the seller of, of services in a completely different way. That's how I think about the role of companies in this energy transition. Um, we've got to have the spirit to do that, and as the secretary said, and I think Ricardo said, every country is different. You cannot, we talk about this in a grand macro scale, but actually how it works in every country, as you said, it's difficult around the world. Uh, I think we do not transactions, we do relationships. We work in many of these countries all around the world. So that's the great dual challenge. How do you balance complex things through coalitions, government policy? We can't do it as a company without governments, uh, without regulations that are well sensible regulations, uh, and without people or families and the individual choices they make to create the right demand for energy. And all those things have to happen. Um, I think it creates enormous opportunities for companies who get this right. Mm -hmm. it's, not, it's not a threat. Um, that's why we do work, and if you heard Spencer earlier, we're heavily involved working with governments on policy. Uh, we helped with the design of the European emissions trading system. Uh, which people said didn't work. Well, it didn't work for a while after the financial crisis, but now it's working really well. Uh, and that model, you can't do a global carbon price, I don't think. I don't think you can do a global trading system, because actually then you're getting into a currency exchanges. So you'll, we're working with the Chinese government on the design of their carbon trading right now. So if you get big centers, North America, Europe, China, to have a carbon price and have regulations at least there, then they'll start to connect in ways. Mm. I'm very optimistic about this. No industry that I can think of has ever dealt with challenges the way the big energy industry has. Yeah, well then one thing I wanted to add, and that's really uh, interesting about the way in which you're intersecting with different you know, policy-making entities, particularly on you know, carbon pricing mechanisms. The, the, the other complicating factor here, though, is, of course, innovation, right? And this is something, Secretary Moniz, you've spent a lot of time talking and thinking about and working on uh, as well, and, and, and Bob, you do, you do the same at BP. Can you talk a little bit about this idea that, you know, several years ago, you know, the idea was we're dropping the cost of a lot of renewables, we're going to be able to distribute them at a more affordable price in more developing economies, and they might be able to leapfrog, right? There might be this way that innovation is going to help 
make the low carbon development pathway or the industrial industrialization pathway different for those places. Is that bearing out in reality or are we seeing a lot of the same sorts of challenges? And what what is the role as we think about innovation, especially in the context of innovation towards a low carbon future as that is being manifested particularly in some of these developing economies? I think it is to a certain extent happening uh, in front of our eyes, uh, but happening in different ways uh, in different places. Uh, certainly, uh, if, if we start with the United States, uh, the energy scene here is extremely different <laughs> from what it was 10 to 15 years ago. Uh, and that also came from innovation. Um, I, I'm, I'm starting with the, the natural gas revolution, then we'll go to renewables. Uh, the, but, you know, we tend to think of uh, too often, you know, innovation is some light bulb suddenly uh, was turned on and, oh, I got a great new idea. Uh, and tomorrow it's going to have a 45% market share. Uh, not quite. Uh, so uh, even the, uh, and Bob said in some sense, often now maligned uh, uh, natural gas, uh, uh, develops in the United States. If you think about that, that was an innovation process that started, roughly speaking, in the late 1970s. Yeah, your, your favorite year of 1979, <laughs> apparently, with uh, oil shocks. <laughs> right. So it started with uh, some DOE investments uh, in characterizing things. It then had public-private partnerships. And a lot of things just suddenly came together 15 years ago. Uh, in terms of, in that case, uh, horizontal drilling and, and, uh, and fracking. Uh, and the benefits for carbon have been quite evident. Uh, the majority of our CO2 reductions in this country have come from coal to gas switching, and that's going to continue for another 15 years, uh, in, in my view. At the same time, the renewables revolution. Once again, uh, it isn't as though you know, NASA wasn't working on solar panels for a long time ago. But there's, there's the issue of getting into the, the mass commodity market has a much more difficult economic test. Uh, by the way, I, I just, as an example, uh, maybe we'll come to this uh, soon in terms of innovation. Uh, I think, and next week, I'll, I'll advertise, next week uh, we'll be issuing a report on carbon direct removal. Mm -hmm. One aspect of which is technologically removing carbon dioxide from, from the air. There's many other pieces. But once again, removing carbon dioxide from the air has been done for a long time. How do you think people live in submarines? for example. It's just that the price point isn't quite right for doing this at, uh, at scale yet. Uh, but now we've come to the place where um, uh, in the renewable space, obviously, well, LED lighting, but, uh, but uh, uh, solar uh, 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 photovoltaics, uh, uh, wind, at least onshore wind, offshore wind, making a strong run now, come bringing, bringing, bringing the cost curve down. Uh, which is going to be very important for my part of the country in the, in, the, in the Northeast. But having those costs come down is fantastic, and, it's, and it presages a much, much greater expansion of wind and solar still to come on top of what we are seeing. But on the other hand, 
we also have to be realistic. There's a lot of happy talk about, for example, wind, solar, and batteries. A, about the actual cost. This year, Lazard and, and, and uh, Bloomberg put out, and they kind of know what's going on. They, they, they put out a levelized cost of solar plus batteries today in the double digits, cents per kilowatt hour. Uh, that's going to keep coming down. But we have to think about, sorry, I'm going off in a rabbit hole here, but we have to think about a system that is reliable and resilient. The reality is batteries, in my view, will never manage the storage time scales that you need for a system. Absolutely, we need hours type of time scale. And batteries are beginning to do that, and the cost will come down. I don't see batteries doing days, weeks, months, and seasons. Yeah. That's called a fuel. Yeah. Maybe it's hydrogen. Hydrogen, I think of as carbonless natural gas. Uh, the, uh, but, uh, <laughs> you can use that, Bob. You can, you can build your business model around that. I was trying that. to decarbonize right. natural that, gas. You've made it simpler. That's right. So, uh, so, you know, we're going to have to take this kind of serious system view. Sometimes it's the systems of, of societal systems. Sometimes it's these technical systems. But uh, it doesn't help any of us to make uh, uh, claims that, uh, I would say, uh, challenge the laws of physics. Uh, and um, so, so but, but I'm optimistic. I'm very optimistic about the innovation pathway. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and I'm also, by the way, to change subjects slightly, very optimistic about, in this country, the bipartisanship that has developed around the innovation agenda for addressing low carbon. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, in 2015, at the beginning of the Paris Conference, uh, uh, I, I will say facetiously, what may have been, in the end, a more important day than the last day of the Paris Conference was when 20 countries came together with Mission Innovation and said, look, we're going to strive to double the innovation budget over five years. Not surprising it's not happening. But pay attention to what's happening in the U.S. Congress. Despite administration requests for 30 to 40 percent reductions, the Congress actually has put those budgets on a 10-year doubling. Okay, it's not five, but you know, yeah. I'll take it for government work. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, so uh, so this innovation agenda is critically important. I believe you cannot overestimate the impact that that's going to have down the road in the business model innovation that he's got to worry about, and in the policy innovation that we're, we're going to need. Uh, because uh, it'll both be new opportunities and lower costs for other other low carbon technologies. That's great. I, uh, so I wanted. To in fact, if I just may, I, sorry, sorry, but just one thing that going back to net zero, uh, and I emphasize the importance of net. It's almost a tautology that net zero means you're going to have substantial negative carbon technologies as well. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. And uh, that's, I think, 
uh, going to be a very, very interesting part of the story. Yeah. Both, so, uh, both, and, and not only geological, but biological as well. Uh, yeah. As well. Yeah. Uh, well, and so Ernie brought up a couple, uh, uh, a bunch of ideas that I think you. Bob, in your in thinking about that transition that you mentioned, right, going to be an all renewables company by tomorrow is not going to work necessarily. But you have the very serious job of trying to figure out where your company fits in this transition, and and much of that is a different kind of an innovation, not on bringing the cost down of those technologies necessarily, but sort of learning about what the cost curves for different technologies could be and what the business case for those things are. Can can you talk a little bit about how? you all approach thinking about um, the, the role of new technologies in the energy system and how you choose to get involved in them in your own sort of pathway of the energy transition? Well, we've been in, involved in, um, first off, to the innovation point. I think companies can't do all the innovation. There are times when, like what the DOD did, to that subsidize DOE. 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 The D, what, I mean the Department of Divots, the Department of Energy, for sure. Yeah. He's kind of knows both, I think. Um, but uh, you, you do need that forward-thinking work sometimes by government, and then transferring that and working with the private sector is how these things go in terms of innovation in many, many fronts. Uh, solar is a great example. That's what started in space, really. Um, for us, we are deeply involved in renewable energy. We have a very large wind business in 15 states in the U.S., and we have solar projects now in 11 countries and 16 U.S. states. We've been involved with this since the early, to the late 1990s. Uh, economics didn't work, I have to say, over time. Probably ahead of our time, we had to write off a lot of those investments, kept the expertise. Um, so it's part of what we do in planning for the future. Uh, we have to allocate capital. One of the most important things a company does is think about how you allocate your capital. And you have capital-intensive businesses and non-intensive businesses. Uh, oil and gas businesses tend to be capital-intensive, of course. Uh, marketing, which we do on a large scale with 10 million customers a year, a day, that's not highly capital-intensive. Uh, our solar investments, we found a better way to attract capital into renewables. I mean, I'm, it's been an aha for me. As BP went back in heavily a year and a half ago and bought for $200 million uh, Europe's largest solar development company. Uh, put $200 million into that. The economics and returns, if we were just to go into that, probably provide the cost of capital. So it's, you, putting billions into that, tough for, for BP. However, that now half-owned independent company has attracted seven billion dollars of capital through infrastructure funds, World Bank, others who are okay with those rates of return. So people say to me, oh you invest three percent of your capital into renewable energy. We, we, we probably attracted half of what we do in a slightly different way and I think companies like ours in this world where you have to have the returns can actually enable large investments into it that I don't think would happen had we not made that purchase and then developed that com country, company from one country, the UK, to 10 or 11 in, in 12 or 14 months. Mm -hmm. And then we take these new technology, we combine them with what we do on the upstream part of the business, natural gas. Now we're putting lots and lots of solar in Egypt, Oman, we're talking with Azerbaijan, places where this wouldn't probably go. And so the economics of that start to look better when we start combining renewables and natural gas. And, and I'll just 
I'll just say, I don't think the world can get to where we need to be, net zero, without the reality. The world does not really want to grow nuclear, which is, of course, the ultimate renewable. So the world's got to build renewables as fast as they can. I think combine it with natural gas or just natural gas displacing coal. Because you've made these really important points that carbon capture use and storage, CCUS, has got to be part of the solution for Paris. So we can't get there with the SDG goals. And then I think hydrogen, I'm optimistic by mid-century, hydrogen is, uh, is going to be a huge thing in, in the world. You can generate it two ways. Many ways are called blue hydrogen. Mm -hmm through industrial processes, or you can do it with electrolysis using solar and wind, for example. But the world's got to do all of those things, and that's why natural gas, people who don't want natural gas, natural gas is the perfect carrier for hydrogen. You can move the natural gas and then decarbonize it where you need to, and it can have a huge impact. So wiping out natural gas, just well, it's not, it's not going to happen in the world, but uh, it is a greenhouse gas. Methane, or methane, um, I'm in the U.S., it's You're methane. In, the US, it's methane here, yeah. <laughs> in Europe, it's methane. <laughs> it sounds very personal, but uh, I think, uh, I think w it is a greenhouse gas. Everybody recognizes that. It's not like CO2 that sits in the atmosphere for 80 years. We need to stop it, detect it, plug the leaks, burn it very efficiently, and all the technology is now coming. That's one area asked about innovation and technology. In a short period of two years, the ability to use infrared, uh, all kinds of detectors, drones has changed the world and being able to find where there's methane, like go out and fix it, satellites and air, air and workers that work, walk around facilities on, on many things, by the way, with 3D goggles that just have to look at something in a refinery and know the temperature and pressure. Uh, and the same thing is happening with methane. So I'm, I think methane is really essential, and I'm glad to hear you say that. Well, I knew that already, but it's just vitally important. So innovation is going to move a lot of things really fast. And, yeah. and yeah. detection of methane leaks and doing something about it is a perfect example of technology that's going to change things very quickly. Yeah. The world needs it. Let me just say that when, you know, in 2011, when I was at MIT, we uh, published a pretty influential, I think, study, The Future of Natural Gas. Mm -hmm. And as I've said, uh, said many times, I'll repeat it now, that uh, when we started, uh, we, one of the, a question was, well, is natural gas part of the problem or part of the solution? And our answer was yes. yes. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that, uh, that because uh, it was very clear, and I think we were pretty prescient in our modeling, frankly, that for decades in the United States, now again in the United States, for decades you were going to see coal substitution by gas mm -hmm. uh, as being a major CO2 reducing uh, approach, but that eventually, as you got out uh, a couple more decades, uh, you'd have to start worrying about sure. <laughs> the CO2 emissions. Now that was before a lot of the recent science as well. So I think you know that's where again that's where the innovation will come in. I and I agree that carbon capture will be part of that. But and I'm also agreeing. I'm going to agree with you again, Bob, on something that you just said. That uh, I think that there are a number of possible pathways to get low to no carbon um, uh, by mid-century. I personally think hydrogen is looking extremely attractive. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, uh, today, uh, so I think a system based upon uh, essentially, essentially zero carbon electricity plus hydrogen, hydrogen. 
could be something because, in fact, a point I haven't made and I'm making now, is that even implicitly a lot of our discussion here uh, uh, tends to gravitate towards renewables and electricity. Mm -hmm. And we have to remember in the, in, in the United States and globally, electricity, okay, in the United States electricity is 27% of emissions. Yeah. There's another 73% to worry about. Uh, and by the way, in California, it's 16% electricity emissions because they've been pretty successful in a lot of what they've done with, uh, uh, with efficiency and, and, uh, and, and, uh, and, uh, and renewables. We've got to think economy-wide. Yeah and uh, elements of the transportation system, industry, agriculture, uh, Calif again, California, 8% uh, of emissions, uh, uh, CO2 equivalent, are, are, are agriculture. It's a, pretty, it's a pretty big business. It's an important business. It's called food, uh, right? Uh, it is not very easy to decarbonize. So we're gonna have to look at something like hydrogen because it can also be used as, quotes, a fuel, uh, can service uh, much, many parts of the economy. It can act, by the way, as a big-time storage medium. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. In fact, again, California, because we study California, people tend to forget, they don't forget that the sun produces more in the day than at night. They don't forget that very often. But they do forget that there's a lot more sun in the summer than the winter. Yeah. And in fact, in California, and it's a question of latitude and clouds and stuff, sun in the summer, the data, uh, the data say it's two to one. And by the way, in California, which is not true everywhere, but in California, it so happens that the wind resource is actually more than two to one summer to winter. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, the same peak. Mm -hmm. So if you're now going to a system of a lot of wind and, uh, and, and sun, you better have something in your back pocket for a lot of seasonal storage. Well, this is the system Hydrogen could play that, that you role. were saying, Bob. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Exactly. Yeah. exactly. Yeah. So we have a lot, a lot of pathways, but we've got to get on it. Yeah. Because we are nowhere near close to having these available uh, for for large-scale deployment. So to that end, I mean, one of the things that we're, and we're almost at time, but I do want to ask you one more question and then uh, open up just for a few questions from the audience. But both of you have spoken and are actively involved in coalitions, right? And, and we can sort of know all the technological answers to all of these problems, but really it's about inciting action. It's about doing something about these things. So both of you were involved in a meeting at the Vatican where you came out with some uh, pledges, and it was an industry coalition with a, 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 some other thought leaders involved as well about trying to incite action. And I just wanted to get a sense of, you know, that's not a normal place for an oil and gas company meeting, right? That's not a normal place to, to be talking about these things. But, um, but it is a very a strong example of a way in which you're trying to build a coalition around these issues. And so could you talk just a little bit about why you did that and, and what's come out of it and what you hope to have come out of it, if that's a good example of a coalition? I think the secretary, you were part of organizing that meeting a year ago and then the second meeting. What's your view? <laughs> so I thought that first, give my first year was a small group. Right. So the first year was a much smaller group. 
And it was, uh, it was invited not just for oil and gas companies, uh, but it was also centered around investors who invest in energy and what their point of view was. And then some very experienced government officials who active in the industry came together and some state governments, investors in Europe and the US. So the first year, I have to say, I felt lectured to, not by the secretary, but I felt lectured to. I mean, I, this was not from the Vatican. They were convening. They wanted to learn, which was fantastic. I'm Catholic. They do that, too. Yeah, and yeah. I grew up Catholic, too. So I could, <laughs> obviously could, could not say no. <laughs> um, but this last year was different, because 10 of the CEOs of major energy companies were there. Uh, about 10 or 12 of the largest investment funds, from BlackRock to the CalPERS in California to some of the European funds were there. Uh, and then uh, a group that immediated a little bit called Switzerland, which uh, the secretary was part of it, was to make sure that we, uh, we reached some sort of agreements on statements. So it's, called, you, it's called negotiating. It was, yes. And it was, <laughs> but these to me were, right. it was remarkable that you got this group together uh, with investors who are, in my view, looking for a scenario, in, publish your scenario to Paris. And of course, there's many, many, many scenarios. Um, but we put forward and signed. Everybody of the CEOs and the heads of the funds actually signed a document in support of the Paris Agreement. Uh, it was in support of a valuation on carbon needed. Carbon price turned out to be too political for some countries, believe it or not, a valuation on carbon, and that pu public companies would be transparent about essentially how they allocate their capital. Mm. What are your scenarios and why are you allocating capital like that? And we've agreed with resolutions of shareholders. Um, but to get that group to sign it, and all the CEOs, and all the legal risk in the United States, by the way. This is the most litigious country in the world, and it prevents so much of people wanting to be open because you're sued for everything, I have to say. So uh, the fact that these statements came out, were signed, big very big companies, um, I thought was remarkable. Let me just add to it. So, um, uh, because for one thing, I'd, I'd say the having this over two years, so maybe, maybe go back a step first of all. So the, the Vatican, uh, uh, with the executive agency, I should say, of the University of Notre Dame, yes. Yes. Um, uh, kind of pulled together a meeting that uh, had, as two major constituents, Bob said, oil and gas CEOs, including, by the way, four of American companies, uh, I can say this now because it's public, uh, ExxonMobil, Chevron, ConocoPhillips, and Occidental, and then a number of other, uh, seven other actually uh, companies um, from Europe, um, headquartered in Europe at least, uh, and major financial uh, institutions. Uh, some investors like equity investors, but a lot of also financial institutions. Um, uh, and, and a few, and a handful of others. And what I think was, is interesting is that, okay, the outcome of the second meeting was actually for, formally two statements. They are on the internet. What is interesting is that everyone who was there, there were 34 potential signatories, and everyone who could sign, for technical reasons, three of them could not sign, the carbon pricing statement. It was a carbon pricing statement. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It called for carbon pricing and social justice. 
and a second statement on corporate carbon disclosures. The couple points. One is the two-year dynamic is very interesting. When you're building coalitions of these type, you gotta be a little bit patient. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, you gotta get to know each other. That was the first year. The first year, you may have felt lectured in one particular moment that I remember, but we had Chatham House <laughs> rule uh, that, uh, uh, but it was, I'm sorry, Bob. It was probably good that you were lectured. Uh, and, and you and your colleagues, I mean. Uh, and, and that was important. And then going into the second year, having found a basis of discussion, because I would say when all was said and done, there was amazing harmony even in the first year, despite a few little eruptions, right? But that was good. You've got to do that. The second year, then, uh, with our Notre Dame colleagues, uh, some draft statements were sent to the participants in advance with the statement that you don't have to sign anything. But these are, we're going to refine these and they will be available for signature. Mm -hmm. And they were refined. <laughs> they were refined. Uh, but in the end, every single person from the oil and gas and financial industries signed both, both those statements. And I think that is the kind of coalition building now that we need to keep building around. Uh, labor has uh, been tremendously involved, but labor also, it's public letter, I think, the AFL-CIO wrote a letter after a particular magical solution was put out. They said, hey, wait a minute, we're signed on to low carbon, but if that's your idea, displacing every worker we can think of, not we're off the bus. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, we're gonna have to just, this is hard work. Yeah. I mean, I know from other kinds of, uh, yeah. of, of arenas, it's yeah. hard work. So the end of we'll, we'll yeah, I'll just put a quick this. footnote yeah. on coalitions because uh, I've been sort of steering something called the oil and glass climate initiative yeah. now for about five years. And to watch that evolve, uh, 14 of the companies that produce 30% of the world's oil and gas, national oil companies as well, from China, Middle East, Brazil, Mexico, and then companies from Europe, and now the US companies. It's remarkable about what you said about patience of building coalitions. Because when we got together and said, what should we do? I think we spent a year and a half, because everybody wanted to do everything. everything. And we said, how do we focus? And I think that's also a practical way with people working on these things, focus. So yeah. it was. Yep. Methane in Europe. Methane, detection, leak, technology, develop, put a billion dollar fund together, focus on that. So, uh, and, and, so, and now CCUS. So, build, and the, so building coalitions, first of all, within, in this case, the energy industry yeah. is important, but then building those coalitions with the other sectors will it's be really important. important. Well. Yeah. And all I'll just say is that yeah. uh, I think now, as we build these coalitions, we gotta get beyond crawling the talk at least walking in the talk, walk in the talk yeah. <laughs> uh, because well, we're going a little bit too slow right we, now. Uh, you guys have a lot to say on these topics and we could do this for a lot longer, but we are standing in the way of uh, this and a discussion at a reception. But I do want to let everybody uh, ask, uh, maybe get one round of questions in. So 
Um, same rules as before, if you can uh, state your name and affili affiliation question in the form of a question. We'll take three quick ones and then we'll try to address them uh, quickly and then uh, we'll continue the conversation outside with some food and drink. So any questions in the audience? We've got one right here. Hi, Patricia Loria from the Global Carbon Capture and Storage Institute. I can imagine you know what I'm going to ask you about. Um, <laughs> so we have a lot of great projects going on in the United States on carbon capture and storage. The OGCI has certainly helped move those. What are your thoughts about China, India, how we help get more projects going on there? Because obviously that's kind of critically important. So OGCI has identified about 130 possible projects around the world. I think that 33 of them look real. We're going to focus on six for OGCI. Uh, you asked me about China and India specifically. One of them is in China. And it's led very strongly by CMPC, the Chinese National Petroleum Company, who, who seems to be really behind it and want to make this happen in a practical way around one of their refineries and industrial centers. So China seems to me like they're really interested. India, we've not had those discussions, uh, to be honest, on CCUS. I think India has so many problems with growth and just providing energy that, they're, that that's just not on their focus today, but we're going to keep trying. Uh, let me just add that um, in, in the, the, the in-depth California study uh, that we did, we were surprised to find, to conclude, that for California to reach its 40% reduction goal by 2030, carbon capture was our third longest pole in the tent for both some uh, uh, NGCC plants, but also industrial plants. So that's one point. Secondly, uh, we are going to have to face up. And, so I th and I think it's very important, by the way, if we could really establish this as a kind of a practical means of lowering carbon, even in the relatively near term of 2030, as well as beyond, in the United States, I think that would have a lot of spillover effects to other countries uh, uh, doing that. But let me just also uh, say something that's not for the faint of heart. Uh, so uh, I, get worried I, I, I mentioned, I mentioned <laughs> earlier carbon direct removal. So not capture from a concentrated source, but from the air or other, yeah, let's say the air. Uh, the National Academy of Sciences had a report uh, recently that suggested that to reach the goals that we're talking about, we would probably need 10 billion tons per year by 2050 of carbon direct removal. Now that can have many pathways, uh, including biological, uh, uh, which we could discuss. Uh, but let's just say, suppose you wanted to put those 10 billion tons underground sequestration per year. Mm -hmm. That's a lot. There's not that many reservoirs. <laughs> that would be, that would be uh, 88 billion barrels of supercritical CO2 per year more than double the global oil, totally oil industry. <laughs> so in other words, we're going to need multiple pathways, but we also got to think about scale because uh, we're going to need big time. I, th I believe we'll need, we'll need big time um, uh, carbon removal. Okay. And we'll just take uh, these two together very quickly and then quick responses. Uh, Andy, and then we'll do Sure, yeah. Andy Patterson with Environmental Business International. Dr. Moniz, you wrote a cover story 
in 2011 why we still need nuclear energy. Russia, China, and India are still building it. Your colleague Jim Hansen at the COP meeting said we can't meet the goals without a significant contribution from nuclear energy. What's the update? Wait one second. Hi, Chris Knight with Argus Media. There's a question for Bob. Is BP on track to meet the goals in the Paris Climate Accord right now? And what is it doing uh, to get closer or get to those goals? Do you want to start? Well, so it's very, I mean, it's interesting, the goals of Paris. So I, I personally and the management team sat down had three or four times this year and looked at the goals of Paris and looked at the IPC scenarios to get to the goals of Paris out of 1,100 scenarios. There are many, many ways. So the world is going to need all fuels. It's, it, it is going to need oil. Um, so what we'll do is on our, we're, we look at advantaged oil in a portfolio, and that has a whole lot of characteristics, not only economics, but the carbon footprint of what we do. Um, but there is not a roadmap, and this is what I keep saying to investors. You want us to put in our annual report, the scenario to Paris. Look yourself at the, uh, the number of scenarios. And the IPCC, I think you will know better, in February is gonna update all those scenarios. And you need to look at a hurricane set of tracking scenarios for 48 hours. And I just did this with uh, Tropical Storm Umberto. Over 48 hours, and it's not just the line, but the number of scenarios and modeling to run for a, for a tropical storm is unbelievable. And we're trying to, people are asking us to model 30 years. So it's hard to, are we on track? I think we're doing all the right things and focusing on the right things. Um, and, and you, need to get to, you need to get to the direction. I think there's a quadrant to head in rather than a single point on the compass or, or the world can't get there. I, I would just add, uh, uh, again, focusing on the United States more, that uh, the electricity sector is an easier one uh, than the fuel sector. Uh, but it's very encouraging, even yesterday, I think, Duke, uh, but a whole bunch of U.S. utilities have now committed to some version of low to no carbon uh, by, uh, by 2050 and, and are making serious progress towards it. I'm, I'm on the board for transparency of Southern Company and uh, Southern Company is already 37% down. So, I mean, you know, there's a lot of progress in that sector and, but now we also got to worry about other sectors which are more difficult to, yeah. to, to do. On nuclear, uh, yeah, nuclear, uh, <laughs> First of all, I remain uh, 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 committed to the idea that nuclear uh, can be a very, very big part of the solution. Uh, but uh, again, in the United States, I have to say, I, I don't, I'm on the southern board, as I said, building the two plants in Georgia, uh, uh, which are still below twice the original budget, uh, a little bit. Uh, the, uh, and uh, I have to say, uh, uh, barring a major change of the entire regulatory structure, which I don't anticipate, I have a hard time seeing any uh, gigawatt scale plants uh, being built uh, in this country, at least for a long time. Uh, on the other hand, I am much more bullish uh, on the uh, small modular reactors, uh, especially moving uh, uh, 
from the light water then going on to other types, molten salt and the like, which have really good uh, safety characteristics. Um, and I think the whole issue was going to be uh, uh, what is the economic performance? Uh, and uh, will we ever get over the hump? Mm -hmm. um, there, is, there are lots of interesting We've never had so much innovation in the nuclear business as we have today, both fission and fusion, in fact. Uh, in the fission area, there are a whole bunch of interesting technologies. Some of them have made real progress in the regulatory uh, structure. But I got to say, there's still the common problem. What happens when you need the billions for the first plant? Uh, uh, eventually, if you get an order book of 20 of them, and you build them on a, in, a, in a production line in a, in a, in a factory and send them, send them on site over the roads or, or rails or rivers for that matter, mm -hmm. uh, there's a serious prospect of substantial cost reduction making this extremely attractive. The trouble is the, it's how do you get from here to there. Yeah. Uh, I, I personally believe, if, again I'm talking about in this country, I personally believe the U.S. government is going to have to find some way of a public-private partnership to get things going. I still have a hard time imagining that means a, an order book of 20 <laughs> as opposed to a, a first of a kind. Yeah. But that's the challenge we face. Techno technologically, it looks very, very encouraging. Yeah. The well, financial engineering is, t is tough. Well, listen, I want to say thanks to both of you uh, and, and to our first panel as well for joining us for this conversation today. These are indeed very complex issues. The thing that I want to pledge is, you know, next year when we sit down to do this, we're going to have rolled up our sleeves and gotten into the specifics of what this actually takes to implement these transitions, address the dual challenge in some very specific countries. Because I think as we heard on the first panel, it's really hard to do this in the aggregate. All countries are different. We don't think about the political economy of those countries, about what it takes to get some of the financing mobilized, the new technologies introduced, and all of those mm -hmm. sorts of things. So we look forward to doing that work, and I want to thank you very much for spending some time talking with us about this challenge today. So please join me in thanking our panelists. Thank you. Thank you.